I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Napoleon Assist. This week, I'm taking a break from interviewing to bring you a snippet of my own research. A number of years ago, I became fascinated by newspaper reports on the Napoleonic Wars. We often talk about how Napoleon censored the press, bringing the number of publications in Paris down from 80 to 4. But I can't help feeling that there's more for us to learn about how the British press reported on the conflict, what they printed, why, their agendas, and most interestingly of all, for me at least, how ordinary people of the public reacted to the press reports. What follows is therefore an extended paper looking specifically at the press's engagement with the Peninsula War. Why just focus on that conflict? Well, for one thing, it helps to keep the discussion self-contained, but the length of the struggle and the shifting attitudes towards the wisdom of maintaining a force in the Iberian Peninsula provides an opportunity to try and tackle an important question. To what extent did the British press shape popular opinion? I'm not sure it's a question that we'll ever truly get to the bottom of, but hopefully this episode will give you something to ponder on, and as always, we can discuss it further online. So this is Breaking the News. The British press, the Peninsula War, and the fight for popular opinion. I am in general callous to the remarks of writers in the newspapers. This characteristic disdain from the Duke of Wellington on the British press conceals the importance of studying newspapers in order to fully appreciate the broader context of the Peninsula War. Research on the relationship between the newspapers and the Peninsula War has tended to form part of a broader study that often covers entire epochs. Prominent examples of this include Aspinall's Politics and the Press, 1780-1850, and James Grant's The Newspaper Press, but both of those publications are now really quite old. That's not to suggest that newspapers have been neglected by scholars of the Peninsula War. 
Roy Muir's admirable Britain and the Defeat of Napoleon makes a number of references to the Times, whilst Kevin Lynch's Britain and Wellington's Army also refers to the London Gazette. Nonetheless, recent developments such as the 19th century British Library newspaper's online archive allows researchers to consult a vast range of source material with comparative ease. Today I want to use that resource to examine the interaction between the British press and both the British public and the army that fought under Wellington in the Iberian Peninsula. I'll draw on both national newspapers such as the Morning Post and the Morning Chronicle as well as local publications such as the Bury and Norwich Post and the Cornwall Gazette. Throughout I want to track the differences where they existed between the two categories of newspapers. I'm also going to take apart Wellington's terse claim of a lack of regard for the British press, demonstrating instead that the newspapers at times caused Wellington considerable concern through their potential to undermine public support for the war and the tendency to indiscriminately publish information which could provide the French, in theory at least, with a tactical advantage. The manner in which the British newspapers reported on the war was, unsurprisingly, influenced by the political and personal leanings of the newspaper and its editor. In 1949, Aspinall identified three main categories amongst the British newspapers, those with ministerial, inverted commas, leanings, those associated with the opposition, and those that were independent of either the Tories or the Whigs. It is tempting to draw direct parallels between this categorisation and the extent to which different newspapers supported the Peninsula War. The Morning Post, for example, can easily be identified as a pro-government newspaper through its consistently optimistic and upbeat articles on the situation in Spain and Portugal, regardless of whether the British Army was advancing or retreating. During the period of inactivity after the Talavera campaign, for example, the newspaper published articles that were jovial in tone and eagerly anticipated the renewal of operations against the French with great confidence. Similarly, when Wellington withdrew the army to the lines of Torres Vedras in the autumn of 1810, the Morning Post claimed that, and I'm quoting here, Lord Wellington has been heard to say that if he could have the choice of any ground to contend with a French army upon, it, is, it should be Torres Vedras, where he is now. The example of the Morning Post contrasts dramatically with the remarks that appeared during the same time spans in the Morning Chronicle, a newspaper with a lengthy, if inconsistent, association with the Whigs. In October 1809, the newspaper attacked Wellington for his conduct during the Talavera campaign, accusing him of failing to plan sufficiently. The testimony of every soldier in Lord Wellington's army who has communicated with his friends is against the line of conduct which he pursued. He thought only of rapidity, not of subsistence. He hurried on, outstripped his commissariat, forced himself into a predicament from which he could not escape without fighting, and in which he could reap nothing but honour by the sacrifice of one-fourth of his followers. Although those remarks support Hugh Davis's argument that Wellington had a tendency to take unnecessary risks, such as the crossing of the Douro to capture a Porto in May 1809, the newspaper's claims are widely considered by scholars to be highly contentious. Ample evidence exists to suggest that Wellington was extremely frugal with his men's lives. Remarking at Torres Vedras in the autumn of 1810, 
This is the last army England has. We must take care of it. Muir has effectively demonstrated the way in which Wellington's meticulous attention to detail when it came to supplying his men can be, based, can be traced back to his early career in India. Clearly, therefore, the Morning Chronicle was motivated by its political allegiance to the Whigs, who, following the convention of Sintra, relentlessly criticised the government's conduct of the war rather than making claims that could be substantiated. It may initially appear misleading to suggest that a direct correlation existed between such characterizations based on political allegiance and the consistency of attitudes in the newspapers to the Peninsula War. An examination of the reports in the Morning Chronicle demonstrates that support for the Peninsula War and the focus of any criticism shifted depending on the situation in the Peninsula. The extract of the Morning Chronicle that I just read indicates that for much of the early part of the war, the newspaper reviewed Wellington with disfavour. Indeed, the Morning Chronicle made a concerted effort to ruin Wellington's reputation and therefore end his career in the immediate aftermath of the conclusion of the Convention of Sintra. In an article on the 14th of October 1808, the newspaper argued that as the reputation of Sir Arthur Wellesley, as he was at the time, rested on the Battle of Versailles, it was necessary to re-examine the battle more closely. The article then proceeded to claim that, quote, those who have the best means of knowing considered Wellington to have blundered into the battle and was only saved from defeat by the repeated assaults of his cavalry. This attempt to undermine Wellington's reputation backfired spectacularly when, the following day, the Morning Post led the daily newspapers in a vehement and withering attack of the Morning Chronicle's accusations, particularly highlighting the refusal to reveal the source of their information and raising the pertinent question of why such details had not come to light sooner. As a result, the following months saw the Morning Chronicle praise Wellington, describing him as the hero of Vermeer. This did not mark a fundamental change in the newspaper's attitudes towards Wellington, as the criticisms after Talavera indicate. Michael Roberts argues that any expression of support or confidence for Wellington by the Morning Chronicle were only made in order to contrast his ability with the ineptitude of the ministry. However, with time, the Morning Chronicle was increasingly faced with the difficult and unenviable task of presenting news of Wellington's successes, which for the British at least, became increasingly optimistic and joyous, in the worst possible light. The relentless pessimism became deeply unpopular amongst the British public, with the Morning Chronicle acknowledging this, and a supporter of the Whigs even bitterly commenting in her diary how she wished to be able to celebrate the good news for a change. Clearly then, this wasn't a problem unique to the Morning Chronicle, and the Whigs were struggling to maintain a unified, pessimistic front. It is generally agreed amongst scholars that following the Battle of Salamanca, criticism of Wellington himself virtually ceased. This is demonstrated by the Morning Chronicle's calls for Wellington to be made a field marshal after that battle, and the way in which criticism of the retreat from Burgos focused on the government's inadequate support of Wellington necessitating his retreat. This is all the more surprising, considering that that is one of the rare instances in which criticism of Wellington's conduct may have been justified. This shift can be closely related to a similar transformation in the targets of the Whig Party in the House of Commons. 
In April 1811, as news of Massena's retreat from the lines of Torres Vedras arrived in England, Gray led a change in attitudes towards the war by a number of former critics, seconding a motion by Lord Liverpool for a vote of thanks to Wellington for the liberation of Portugal. As a result, party loyalties appear to have had a profound effect on the attitudes of a number of the daily newspapers to the Peninsular War. Clearly, Aspinall's original characterisation of the daily newspapers along party political lines therefore retains its validity. However, there are limitations to that categorisation based on party affiliation, as it's hard to find any publications, local or national, that took an indifferent tone to the events in the peninsula. Furthermore, the attitudes of the local newspapers were more nuanced, although simultaneously, oddly, more simplistic as well. Two major categories can be identified amongst the local publications, the minority that criticised government conduct of the Peninsula War and those that supported the war on patriotic grounds. The Liverpool Mercury, for example, was consistently critical of the operations of the Allied army. In July 1811, it remarked with grim satisfaction on the failure of Wellington's siege of Badahoff, and followed, in September, with scathing remarks on Wellington for his hesitancy on the Spanish border. The newspaper's pessimism was even evident whilst rumours circulated of the Allied victory at Salamanca, claiming that all the accounts were false and based on fabricated letters. They certainly ended up with egg on their face with that one. It's interesting to note, however, that the Liverpool Mercury sought to avoid repeating the Morning Chronicle's mistakes by consistently expressing its confidence in Wellington's ability despite the acidic remarks that you've just heard. By contrast, the whole packet, a weekly local newspaper, was far more symptomatic of the patriotic tone to be found in most local publications. In August 1811, the packet published an article that portrayed Wellington as a selfless hero for turning down the Prince Regents of Portugal's offer of a pension. The editors of the whole packet considered this to be particularly significant given the recent emphasis that critics have been placing on the wealth that Wellington had amassed while serving in India, although they ignored the £2,000 annuity that Wellington was given along with his title after Talavera. Similar patriotism can be found in the Hampshire Telegraph's reports on reinforcements being sent out to Portugal, reassuring its readers that, quote, exertions are making out of the ordinary way in terms of commitment to the cause in the Iberian Peninsula. Local newspapers are often the best means of assessing the popular mood due to the way in which they publish letters from local individuals giving their responses to contemporary newspaper reports on the war. The whole packet, for example, printed a letter in May 1811 to the editor which attacked those critics of Wellington who also praised the actions of the French, i.e. they they made this criticism along patriotic grounds. Similarly, the Ipswich Journal published a copy of a poem read at the theatre in Bury St Edmunds following the Battle of Victoria, entitled Britannia's Pride, Her Wellington. Patriotism, then, seems to have been the watchword for many of these publications. It is obviously difficult to tell, though, whether they dictated popular opinion or simply sought to reflect it, an important question that I want to come back to later. There was, it has to be said, extensive overlap across the press, with it being common practice for local papers 
to reprint lengthy sections from the London papers. This was a reflection of where people got their news from. In an age of comparatively slow communication by modern standards, where horse and sail were the fastest means of transport, the local newspapers could actually only source a proportion of their material by presenting updates from around the world through drawing on the reports in the London daily newspapers when they arrived. What is often seen in newspapers, therefore, is a trickle-down effect as the news spread out from the metropolis to the provinces. Even when such reprints did not explicitly state the London papers they were drawing on, many different titles would present the same information in precisely the same layout. This was particularly true of the local newspapers with the Caledonian Mercury on the 24th of October 1808 and the Lancashire Gazette on the 29th of October 1808, providing just one example of this by both printing identical summaries of a letter from Wellington defending his actions in signing the Convention of Sintra. The national newspapers were also susceptible to this, with both the Morning Chronicle and Morning Post publishing identical extracts from a letter by a British officer describing the plight of the 23rd Light Dragoons at Talavera. Equally, they were often obliged to source their news from the newspapers of other countries, with summaries being printed under such headings as Spanish papers. This is unsurprising given the limited nature of information and the sporadic way in which official dispatches and private letters arrived from Spain and Portugal. It was also partly unavoidable, as the official source of information was the London Gazette Extraordinary, it was not unusual for, common, for columns to simply beheaded the London Gazette Extraordinary, followed by the information that the government had released. The sporadic manner in which information arrived in England also appears to re have resulted in attempts, both in the national and regional newspapers, to sustain the public interest in the war when information was scarce. This concept is supported by Harvey's claim that the newspapers did not lead public opinion, they fed it. A number of articles published in both the national and regional newspapers after Victoria are noteworthy for being either gossip-laden or relatively mundane in terms of their content. The Morning Post contributed wholeheartedly to this phenomenon, printing letters from officers at headquarters on the 9th, 16th and 20th of October 1813, reporting on the preparations that were being made for invasion of France. Similarly, a gossip-laden article on how Spanish officials in Cadiz sought to honour Wellington appeared in the newspaper in February 1813, and in 1811, unremarkable letters on Wellington reviewing his troops and reports on the arrival of reinforcements for Wellington's army filled the columns. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This raises the intriguing question of whether there was a specific market amongst the British public for Peninsula War-related information. Such a question can't be fully and adequately considered within the the confines of a single podcast. And to be honest, it merits an entire doctoral thesis in its own right. Nonetheless, it is possible to draw some tentative conclusions. The abundant nature of this phenomenon suggests that the public craved information of any description on the army once it was apparent that it was an exceptionally successful force which would continue to inflict defeats on the French. Given the protracted nature of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, and Britain's often disastrous record in operations on the continent, this enthusiasm in the face of overwhelming success is unsurprising. This does not undermine the suggestion that the newspapers sought to sustain public interest, as by providing a steady stream of fresh news and letters in their columns, they ensure that the Peninsula War still occupied the thoughts of the British public, to some degree, however slight. Tied into this is, of course, the question of whether the papers influenced or responded to popular opinion, and the extent to which they reflected popular attitudes. There has been considerable debate on this, as historians have discussed whether the newspapers were a product of consumerism and sought to publish material that appealed to the public, or whether newspaper editors were setting the agenda for the public by giving prominence to certain topics at the expense of others. Aspinall has pointed out that there were certainly fears of the latter from William Pitt, Henry Banks and Wellington, with all three of them having concerns that the newspapers were a tool through which the country could be governed and which could be highly subversive to the existing social and political order in the hands of political agitators. More recently, however, Hannah Barker has argued that although there was a perception that the newspapers influenced popular opinion, which politicians sought to exploit, the reality was far more nuanced. Income from sales and advertising was consistently more important than political subsidies, with the result that much depended on the target audience of a particular publication. Maintaining the public interest in the successes of the Peninsula War may also have served an additional purpose in partially distracting the literate classes from issues at home. From 1810, a serious recession afflicted the UK, with the numbers of unemployed rising as a result. In Manchester alone, £34,600 was paid by parish church wardens in Manchester in poor relief between the Easter of 1812 and the Easter of 1813. Unrest spread throughout the country with notable flashpoints, including the murder of William Horsfall, a prominent manufacturer and opponent of the Luddites, Burdett's arrest in April 1810, and rioting in 1811. Grant also highlights that none of the five morning journals, that is, the Times, the Morning Post, the Morning Chronicle, the Morning Advertiser, and the Morning Herald, were forthcoming with support for social policies of the government through leading articles. In these circumstances, where many feared that social order might be in danger, the newspaper's focus on more positive news from the peninsula was probably a welcome respite for many. 
For those in the army itself that were literate, the newspaper's accounts of the progress that they were making was a source of interest and concern depending on their responsibilities. Wellington's correspondence demonstrates that, far from being irrelevant as his disdainful comment at the start suggests, the newspapers were a source of considerable concern and irritation. One of the most prominent fears that occupied Wellington was the influence that the press was perceived to have on popular opinion. Ignacio Paz has suggested that British public opinion did not have an effect on the war. However, that assertion is arguably contentious. If the public had become sufficiently discontent with the war to demand its termination, the weakness of the successive ministries up to 1812 would have left the government with limited options. It is important to recognise that, contrary to the claim of Emsley, the war was not unpopular in Britain, as it afforded a source of positive news and glorious achievements that could be admired after the disastrous operations in the Flanders between 1793 and 1795, and at Vaucheron in 1809. Muir has shown that in 1814, Lord Liverpool paid close attention to the demands from all classes of people that Britain should not conclude peace with Bonaparte. The widespread joy and celebration that newspapers made, reference to after victories such as Salamanca and Victoria, further undermine Emsley's claim. Nonetheless, the fragility of the government, at least until the general election of 1812, partly precipitated, of course, by Salamanca, meant that ministers feared the consequences if they wholeheartedly supported Wellington and he then lost a battle. A wave of popular discontent fuelled by the newspapers had the potential, when added to the disturbances and disgruntled public mood, to topple a ministry, or even, as one Devonshire gentleman predicted, begin a revolution. Such fears were perhaps slightly hysterical. Nonetheless, the resultant hesitancy in government policy caused Wellington to remark, The government are terribly afraid that I shall get them and myself into a scrape. A great deal might be done now if there existed in England less party and more public sentiment. When thinking about this, you could also argue that Wellington's comment to Beresford to rewrite the dispatch on El Buera and write him a victory has renewed significance. Although, as has been demonstrated, many of the newspapers supported Britain's operations in the peninsula, Wellington was well aware that the more critical newspapers would not hesitate to exploit any reversal in the Allied army's fortunes in order to attack the ministry. This, in turn, may have caused him to feel slightly restricted when committing to a battle, and is considered to have been a potential reason for his hesitation when confronted by the French at San Cristobal during the Salamanca campaign. It is important to note that Wellington's ability to win every battle that he fought in the peninsula had a far greater impact on the public mood than anything that the newspapers could print. This is demonstrated by the instances of the Whigs themselves acknowledging that their pessimism was received with considerable hostility amongst the wider British public. Clearly, in light of this, the ability for the press to erode public support for the war was limited, yet it is the perception of the newspaper's ability to manipulate public opinion that was important. 
The newspapers were the principal means by which the croakers, or disaffected and disillusioned officers in the army, expressed their grievances and criticisms of their commander publicly. This problem was a source of concern and irritation for Wellington, as a letter to Charles Stuart, the British envoy to Lisbon, demonstrates. There is a system of croaking in the army which is highly injurious to the public service, and which I must devise a means of putting an end to. This criticism from the croakers undermined Wellington's authority at home by implying that he lacked the confidence of his own army, with the resulting potential for his judgments on how best to proceed in the peninsula being called into question by both the British government and the opposition. One subordinate, the Adjutant General of the Peninsula Army, also funnily enough called Charles Stuart, though the spelling of Stuart is, is different, uh, was so prolific a croaker that Wellington allegedly threatened that if you continue to write letters to the Chronicle or any other newspaper, by God I will send you home. Wellington was eventually forced to issue a general order on this subject, requesting that officers, for the sake of their own reputations, avoid giving opinions upon which they cannot have a knowledge to enable them to form any. However, the British press presented a far more fundamental problem for Wellington than encouraging and publishing criticism of his actions. The frequency and lack of discrimination with which the newspapers published details on the positions of the Allied troops made him fear for his troops' safety. This was a concern that he expressed to Lord Liverpool in November 1809. I beg to draw your lordship's attention to the frequent paragraphs in the English newspapers describing the position, the numbers, the objects and the means of attaining them possessed by the armies in Spain and Portugal. In some instances, the English newspapers have accurately stated not only the regiment occupying a position, but the number of men fit for duty of which each regiment was composed, and this intelligence must have reached the enemy at the same time it did me, at a moment of which it is most important that he should not receive it. The newspapers have recently published account of the defensive operations occupied by the different English and Portuguese corps, which certainly conveyed to the enemy the first knowledge he had of them, and I enclose a paragraph recently published describing the line of operation which I should follow in the case of occurrence of a certain event, the preparations which I had made for that operation, and where I had formed my magazines. It is not necessary to inquire in what manner the newspapers acquire this description of information, but if the editors really feel an anxiety for the success of military operations in the peninsula, they will refrain from giving this information to the public, as they must know that their newspapers are read by the enemy, and that the information which they are desirous of conveying to their English readers is mischievous to the public exactly in proportion as it is well founded and correct. Your Lordship will be the best judge whether any and what measures ought to be adopted to prevent the publication of this description of intelligence. I can only assure that it will increase materially the difficulty of all objections in this country. The precision of the information that newspapers gave is painfully apparent from a single example from the Bury and Norwich Post in 1809, although the Aberdeen Journal and the whole packet were equally culpable. Here's the Bury and Norwich Post's report. Lord Wellington's army are hutted at Badahoff. General Sherbrooke's division extends from Loban to Merida. 
The artillery, four brigades, is encamped near Badahoff. The sick are at Elvash. The worst cases have been sent to Lisbon. The army is extremely sick, 7,000 sick and wounded. Given the extraordinary successes of the Spanish guerrillas in intercepting French dispatches and thereby seriously limiting their intelligence on Wellington's army, this breach in security undermined one of Wellington's most powerful advantages. Or did it? Because information like this only mattered when the army was stationary. In times of movement, the information would be stale long before these reports ever reached French readers. It would take weeks for such news to reach London from Wellington's army, days for it to trickle down to the regional publications, and then further days and weeks for it to reach readers in Paris. From there, it was again a matter of weeks to reach the front line in Spain. At best, the information might be something like a month old before it reached the French forces courtesy of the newspapers, and it would be naive to suggest that the French did not have their own spies who could ascertain much of this information anyway. As with many concerns over the newspapers, the fear was perhaps more crucial than the reality. Wellington was by no means the only person in the Allied army to be affected by the publications of the press. Letters and diaries of officers serving under Wellington in the peninsula indicate that the dispatches and editorial comments published in the newspaper columns were a source of significant interest. Indeed, specific articles sparked a discussion between serving officers and their families back home in England. In a letter to his sister, Thomas Dinley answered her query as to why Wellington had written a pessimistic dispatch at the time of the beginning of his retreat from Burgos. Dinley claimed that Wellington's tone could be attributed to the perilous situation that the army had been in, and Wellington's wish to prepare the public for the worst. Such an interpretation of Wellington's motives is fanciful, as although the Duke was aware that his dispatches were published in the newspapers, the very fact that he was writing in an official capacity meant that he would not have allowed concerns for the British public's morale to impinge on the views that he expressed. It's important to remember that there is a key difference between the dispatches, that is, the official reports that he made, and his private letters to members of the government sent in a personal capacity, though relating to business of running the army. Dispatches were meant for publication, and the confusion often arises from the fact that Wellington's private letters on public business were published by Gerwood in several volumes entitled Dispatches. Nonetheless, this example indicates that the letters which the newspapers chose to publish had a significant impact on the public, causing, in this instance, Dinley's family to become concerned for both his welfare and Wellington's state of mind. It is also possible that the representation of the war may have assisted the recruitment of officers. This argument must be made with caution, as Lynch and Emsley have effectively demonstrated the difficulty that the government had in filling places in the local militia, with the future railway engineer George Stevenson even paying a substitute to fill his place when he was balloted for the militia, and actually that practice wasn't unusual. However, the applications for ensigne ships show a steady increase in the number of positions that could be filled by volunteers. It is difficult to comment with any degree of certainty about the factors which motivated these men to volunteer, which involved proceeding to the peninsula with only a letter of recommendation and serving in the ranks until a vacancy became available. However, considering both the fact that any aspiring officer would have needed to be literate 
and that the newspapers were the primary source of information on the progress of the British army in the Iberian Peninsula, it is difficult to imagine that the increasingly positive portrayal of the war at home did not inspire some of the volunteers. Now, I don't want to overstate that argument, as there is a very clear correlation between the number of applications for ensign ships and the success of the army in its campaign. As a result, between December 1810 and December 1811, a total of 86 applications were made, yet for the same period the following year, 155 applications were recorded. Furthermore, the increase in successful applications from volunteers can partially be attributed to the higher numbers of killed and wounded that the British Army suffered as the numbers of men deployed in the peninsula increased. This is shown by the particularly high numbers of applications after the capture of Badajoz, 53 applications in April 1812, and San Sebastian, 41 applications in September 1813. Nonetheless, it is hard to imagine that the newspapers did not contribute in some small way to the rise in the number of volunteers through their generally favourable reports. To sum up then, although Aspinall's categorisations of newspapers' attitudes to the Peninsular War on party lines are valid for the national newspapers, a more simplistic demarcation between patriotic support and criticism can be made when assessing the attitudes of local newspapers. Furthermore, attitudes shifted over time, with Wellington's ongoing success as both a strategist and a commander in battle, gradually producing a change from relentless pessimism to unremitting support for the general, and, eventually, the government's conduct of the war. The responses of the army's literate were largely dependent on their political affiliations. For Wellington, the newspaper's lack of discretion in publishing information on troop distributions or the criticism of the Croakers, contrary to his claims, concerned and exasperated him in equal measure. That's it for this episode, but before you go, I want to share some exciting news. Firstly, a big thank you to the wonderful people who are supporting the Napoleon Assist on Patreon. You can join them if you're interested. From £1 a month, just go to patreon.com forward slash the Napoleon Assist to find out more. A particular thank you to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Alex Churchill, an anonymous Canadian, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Anna Vakulenko, Beatrice de Graaf, Lynn Dawson, Jamie Kingston, Roy Muir, James Bevan, and Lucy Tatner. As you know, I don't just love those who are extraordinarily generous, so a big thank you to everyone who spreads the word. Please take the time to hit the like button on social media, Thank you to everyone who is leaving reviews on your preferred podcasting platforms. If you have a couple of minutes, please do leave your thoughts. It makes a huge difference. And this takes me on to one of my big pieces of news. I was very humbled the other day to learn that the Napoleon Assist is now registered as in the top 10% of podcasts globally. That's genuinely mind-blowing news. To have reached that point after 10 months is simply due to the brilliance of my guests and the loyalty of all of you, so thank you all for your support. Next month is going to be a busy one, as I am bringing you one of my specials. People often like to suggest that I am the embodiment of Perfidious Albion, predominantly because I'm not a subscriber to the Napoleonic cult. It's absolute rubbish, obviously meted out by trolls, 
and based on a complete lack of appreciation that my stance on any individual or institution in history is that the good and the bad need to be acknowledged in equal measure. So with that in mind, I want to look at an aspect of the Napoleonic Wars which is somewhat overlooked, vitally important, but not an area where the English have any semblance of a good record, and certainly not something that tends to be uh, a topic they like to draw attention to. That is, the experience of Ireland. Over March, the Napoleonicist will play host to what I am dubbing Irish Month, as I go weekly to bring you four interviews with some brilliant experts covering a wide range of Irish history from the period. Katrina Kennedy, Marcus Beresford, Andrew Dorman and Jim Deary will all be joining me to discuss the Irish Revolt, Marshal William Beresford, Wellington's Irish troops and the British Army's record in Ireland. It's going to be a packed programme, the discussions are going to be incredible and I know I and my guests are excited about it, so there's something to look forward to. Don't say I don't spoil you. But on top of that, I want to reprise the spirit of Waterloo Remembered and particularly the Voices from the Battlefield series by giving voice to Irish voices. With that in mind, I am seeking to put together kind of a, a montage, if you will, of different accounts of um, civilians and soldiers who were alive during the Napoleonic and French Revolutionary Wars. If you are interested in contributing to that, I'm looking for five minute segments. You would choose your own uh, segment that you want to read. You don't need to be Irish to put your name forward. Um, and the idea is that you would just DM me on Twitter. I'm there at History. Tell me what you are looking to record so that there's no overlap between different contributors and then send me the video file in your own time, which I will then put together with the others for release in late March. So if you're interested in getting involved, please do drop me a line. Please do remember that the conversation always continues online. As I've said on Twitter, I'm at ZWhiteHistory, and you can get involved in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net. Until next time, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, keep believing we are getting there with this pandemic. And as always, thank you for listening.